0: following is a production of the Event Safety Alliance.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Event Safety Podcast. I'm Steve Adelman. Today, uh, it will come as no surprise, the topic is coronavirus. Um, because that seems to be a topic dominating not only our industry, but the news in general. And so we're going to approach the coronavirus uh, disease from a practical standpoint for event professionals. We're going to discuss uh, two aspects and then apply them. So we're going to explain what a force majeure provision is because. There is much discussion about whether uh, coronavirus is a force majeure event. Uh, Force majeure language is in all of your contracts. Uh, Then we're going to discuss uh, business interruption and event cancellation insurance coverage, because that's probably something most of you also have or have seen. And then once we discuss those two things that you probably have but haven't had occasion to think about very much. then we're going to apply them to a real life situation that one of our group uh, with the Event Safety Alliance Canada is actually grappling with right now. So, on today's podcast, um, I am joined by Scott Carroll from Take One Insurance, uh, Janet Celery from Celery Health and Safety and uh, head of the Event Safety Alliance Canada, and also Jim Digby, who is the president of the Event Safety Alliance here in the States. Um, so, With that, I'm going to lead off by discussing just a bit of law. I don't think this will hurt very much. Uh, So I'm going to explain force majeure. So first I'm gonna spell it, because it's French. Um, Force majeure, F-O-R-C-E, that's English, majeure, M-A-J-E-U-R-E. Again, this is a provision that is towards the end of pretty much every contract you've ever seen, but you probably had no reason to look at it, so briefly, Force majeure is a term which means, literally translates as higher force, what most people refer to as an act of God. Um, So you'll see in a force majeure provision in any contract, it'll say, you know, a force majeure event includes but is not limited to, and then there'll be a parade of horribles, fire, flood, riot, insurrection, you know, I'm picturing tricorn hats and muskets, Um, severe weather, um, earthquake, Uh, loss of electrical power, so if there's a blackout. Those are typically in the list, the non-exclusive list of force majeure events, but don't worry about the list. Here's the point. So a force majeure event is comprised of two elements, and if you're the kind of person who wants to write things down, get ready to write because here are the two elements that comprise the legal concept of force majeure. One something really bad has happened, which makes performance of the obligations under the contract either impossible or so absurdly difficult to perform that it it just wouldn't make any sense at all to enforce the contract. So performance is impossible or just absurdly difficult and therefore against public policy. The second element is this terrible thing that's happened is not within the control of either contracting party. In other words, it's neither of their fault. And so if something happens which is neither of the party's fault and makes performance either impossible or just absurdly difficult, then the idea of a force majeure provision is it voids the contract both parties are supposed to basically act as if they never got together in the first place. Everybody goes to their separate corner. Nobody is unduly penalized, and you know you both take your lumps, but you live to fight another day. That's the idea of force majeure. Now, the question that I have been getting over the last two weeks is, is coronavirus, as we currently are dealing with it, a force majeure event? and reasonable minds may differ on this point, let me give you my perspective. So there are scientists, I'm obviously not one, who are referring to coronavirus as a pandemic. As applied to force majeure language in a contract, the legal issue is, where you are located on the day that you are dealing with this, so this is a time and location sensitive issue, where you're located, when you have to deal with it, is coronavirus something which makes performance of your contract either impossible or absurdly difficult? So, you know, if you're in, you know, Wuhan, China, yeah, Performance, completely impossible. If you're in Northern Italy, performance is completely impossible. Um, Iran, um, a nursing home in Kirkland, Washington. Performance, completely impossible. That is truly a force majeure event. The contract will be void. Both parties will go their separate ways. If, however, you are most anyplace else, then what you're dealing with is not an impossibility, but rather fear of contagion. Fear of contagion is not a force majeure event, at least not unless it's accompanied by actual contagion. So what most of us who are listening to this podcast are likely dealing with is not legally a force majeure event. Rather, it's just a really difficult, uncomfortable situation where you know that there are people who are not going to want to come to the event and there's going to be financial hardship but your contract language is not going to give you that out because fear of any disaster is not actually a force majeure event. So that's the law as I see it. But when we get to Janet Celery, who will apply this, then we'll see how the logic works. Even if there's not a contract answer, there's got to be an answer. So. Contract law does not tell us what we need to do with regard to coronavirus, so at that point, having simply explained the concept, I have no answer, so now I'm going to pass the baton to Scott Carroll, who, from Take One Insurance's perspective, is going to explain business interruption coverage and event cancellation coverage to see if, from the insurance standpoint, as opposed to the legal standpoint, to see if there is an answer there, so Scott Carroll, will you tell us something about uh,
2: business interruption and event cancellation coverage? I will certainly try, Steve. Thank you, and good morning. Um, let's, let's talk about business interruption specifically first as it relates to uh, a property policy. Uh, business interruption coverage typically is not triggered unless there is a physical property damage or damage to the physical property in some way be it a fire or some insurable reason that that property became damaged. It's then that business interruption may come into play. So the cancellation of contracts as a result of or in some way related to something like COVID-19 as a result, most likely there is no physical property damage such that you could claim under business interruption, specifically. Event cancellation is uh, also a form of business interruption. It's just a very unique form. Uh, Event cancellation coverage um, does have uh, a number of reasons that it will apply, not necessarily to COVID but let me explain in a little with a little more clarity so event cancellation coverage will respond to various events or situations that are anticipated that are thought about that are underwritten by the event cancellation insurers there are also certain exclusions that typically exist under an event cancellation policy and most specifically to what we're discussing here is communicable disease or infectious disease exclusions those are uniform across i would say every event cancellation policy Uh, they're sort of automatic exclusions um, and so, uh, uh, and that is a communicable disease or infectious disease that occurs at the event, right? So, um, and it's, it's critical sort of that we discuss at the event. So, but to Steve's point earlier, um, so would COVID-19, well, I'm sorry, let me back up for just a second. So communicable disease exclusions do exist. Certain event cancellation policies or certain insureds can seek to remove that exclusion from their policy at the time of writing it. Um, And so one could prepare themselves for a communicable disease type of scenario. Um, But is it done often? No. Uh, But is it available to be done or could it be done? Sure. The The point, though, that I think is most relevant is specifically back to what Steve said. The fear of communicable disease or the fear of infectious disease, like the fear of terrorism in a certain way, is never covered. It's not part of the policy, never anticipated to be a part of a contract like this. So... What I what I would say for the audience's perspective are a couple of things. One, uh, that if you have or if there is event cancellation coverage in place and someone files a claim relative to COVID-19, the insurance company is going to, and I believe this in my heart of hearts, the insurance company is going to look for coverage, first and foremost. They're going to see if coverage does exist. Once they review that, they then also look at the exclusions. And in the case of COVID-19, it is likely that the communicable disease or infectious disease uh, clause would step in. Uh, And then to further that point, the fear uh, scenario that we've been talking about would also step in and most likely require or cause the carrier to deny coverage in that uh, that part. So, Scott,
1: let me just ask because I read a lot of contracts and the most difficult contracts I ever read are insurance contracts. When you refer to an exclusion, this is really basic stuff, but I want to make sure that I get it because it's like double negatives in my brain. When you refer to an exclusion, that means that there would be coverage, but not for whatever it is that you happen to be talking about. In this case, communicable or infectious disease. Is that right? Yes, okay. that is right. And just to clarify, because you said two things that I didn't know, business inter- business interruption coverage requires a physical physical damage to physical property.
2: For for in the grandest of schemes, yes. In the broadest of terms, yes. That is the typical trigger.
1: Okay, so obviously, coronavirus doesn't damage property; damages people, um, and then. When you started talking about event cancellation coverage, you said that when talking about communicable or infectious disease, it would coverage might apply
2: if the illness occurred at the event. What I mean is that um, that the event cancellation policy would relate uh, the communicable disease portion or the infectious disease portion would really. Be specific to the event itself Um, so if something of uh, uh, an outbreak were to occur at the event um, then that's where the 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 trigger for it could be in play the um, but it is in the broader it is typically an excluded peril anyways so communicable disease is really, uh, the way to look at it, I think, for the, for the audience perspective is communicable disease, infectious disease is typically excluded, period. Meaning so, there, is, there is no coverage for it.
1: There is no coverage for it. Okay, so l- let me just take this one small step further. Um, let's say that somebody has already been to an event, whether they're working it or they're participating in it, and they contract an illness, whether it's, you know, coronavirus or something else. Let's say that they, you know, do what is their God-given right, and they find themselves a lawyer and threatened to sue. Would there be insurance coverage
2: for the operator of that event? That is a, that's a difficult question to answer, but... Is that a separate issue? It's a separate issue relative to that would become a general liability issue for the event itself. So it is a bit of a separate issue, um, and it's unknown at this point how the policies would respond, um, but um, uh, my my sense is that that, too, would be something that would not be uh, covered by virtue of most likely the force majeure language that you referred to earlier. Okay. So
1: at this point, gentle podcast listeners, um, we've been a font of good news, haven't we? So your contract's not going to save you, and sounds like your insurance policy is unlikely to save you. Um, So, all right, Janet Celery is wiping sweat from her brow in Ontario, Canada, because Janet, you've got an event coming up later this month, don't you?
0: I sure do, it's three weeks away. We have uh, been planning the Event Safety Alliance Canada Conference for quite some time with great excitement. Um, Certainly every year when we go to Rock Lititz and we hang out with all our ESA friends, that's something we really want to do in our own way up here in Canada. So I have booked a gorgeous venue. It's the art gallery of Ontario, and we have invited all these like-minded safety conscious event people to join us for a one day of presentations that they can then take back to their own workplaces and their own events and make improvements. Sounds great. Who wouldn't want to be there? Um, but now we have this small complication that we're grappling with. So um, just to think about it in terms of what Steve and Scott have already said, um, we're not actually in any kind of a force majeure situation at this point. And I'll tell you a little bit more in a moment about how I sort of came to that conclusion, uh, which can only be true in this moment. I can't predict into the future, unfortunately. Um, As I was beginning to see the reports, I had little flashbacks to a time back in 2003 when Ontario was uh, impacted enormously by the SARS outbreak. So I got in touch with uh, an insurance broker who does a great deal of work within the event space and asked that great question, can I get event cancellation for my conference? To which he went and did some research and came back and said that is just not available so now we are in the position of having to make a decision so i won't keep you hanging steve Um, at this moment we are continuing with our preparations as planned yay Um, but it's not a decision we make easily or without a tremendous amount of thought and it could change if something else happens Do you want me to tell you about some of the thoughts I had behind making those decisions? Yes, please. Okay, Okay. so the first thing I wanted to uh, think about, so there's three kinds of big things that kind of shape my decision making. And the first one is wanting to keep people who are either considering coming to the conference or have already registered, informed about our current actual risks. What's actually happening here? Um, the second thing was, I want to take a look at all that coverage that that informs us of the global reality. But I want to make my decisions based on what's happening locally. So there's a whole big scary world out there, uh, but what's really happening in this space where I'm going to hold my event. And finally, I know that it's important to stay ready to receive new information and, and pivot you know, I may need to make a different decision the night before. I don't think so, but I have to be open to that. So, how do I figure all this out in our context? Um, so, I'm going to tell you about a little bit more about Ontario. So, Ontario went through an extremely difficult time in 2003. I was at that time health and safety manager at the Stratford Festival, North America's largest classical repertory theater, and Uh, To tell you the truth, public health was no way on my radar. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know how to respond in any way to an outbreak. And that had to change. That really had to change. So within hours, I was figuring out what the credible sources were. I was preparing updates for our staff. I was sitting in on meetings to make decisions. So this event, I went to look at our local status of the outbreak and uh, just as of about two hours ago um, Ontario has tested two thousand four hundred and three people of which they have confirmed 30 positive cases and also there are four cases that have resolved people have um, you know stayed in home isolation and they've gotten better. So when you look at our population, that's not an enormous outbreak. And these are cases that are as a result of people who have traveled to uh, places where the infection's much more common. So that was a big thing. Are we really at risk? Right now, I'm feeling the risk to us in this place at this time is fairly low. So then I had a look at the size of our event. We're not doing a monstrously huge event. We're not bringing people in internationally. Our maximum number is going to be 200 people. We have a lovely event space called the Bailey Court, and we'll have a couple of seminar rooms for breakouts. So, you know, that makes a big difference, too. If we were inviting 30,000 people from all corners of the world, I would feel differently about that uh then i had a look at venue health precautions and i talked with my contact at the art gallery and they are you know continuing to monitor the situation, they're taking advice of health officials, they've added additional hand sanitizer systems, uh, you know, stations that they can put where they need them. Um, So they provided a great deal of reassurance. Yay! (laughs) Hand sanitizer, I know, it's like gold these days. Um, So they're taking precautions that I feel are proportionate and uh, appropriate in this situation. Uh, Then I went back to my uh, registrations and I looked at attendee travel. Where are people coming from? And everyone so far is coming from Canada. The majority of them are within the greater Toronto area with only a handful outside of Ontario. Um, We have had so far no attendee or speaker cancellations. We do have a fabulous keynote speaker who will be joining us by video link from the UK. But that decision was made separately. That's not a Covid nineteen decision. So I know I've rambled quite a long time without letting anyone else get a word in edgewise But those are the thoughts for my event that I'm sort of rattling around, and I believe we're we're coming to a, an appropriate decision at this point.
1: So Janet, let me just emphasize. It sounds like, as I had teased at the beginning, you're making a decision based on circumstances that are local. Yes. And You're making a judgment based on what you know today while reserving the right to make a different decision if the facts wind up becoming different.
0: Yes. Another thing that I'm doing is looking at are there some ways that we could save some money if we have lower attendance? Now, I think with the lineup of sessions we've got, and the speakers who are joining in, people will be breaking the doors down to join in. But should they somehow, you know, begin to feel uncomfortable attending, um, I've been given an extra week to confirm my numbers for catering. So if I have to say, well, we're going to have twenty less people, I can pay for twenty less lunches at that point. Uh, so looking at a few minor things I can do to reduce the cost, but otherwise full steam ahead. Because if we cancel, we have no insurance to cover it, and uh, I really feel the risk is is low for for this particular event at this time.
1: And, and you know, for what it's worth. I just came back from speaking at a conference in Vancouver, and I'm fine, at least asymptomatic, and the attendance was just fine. Um, There was no material number of cancellations, and I took the SkyTrain into downtown Vancouver several times, and the cars were packed, just like always. So here with the Event Safety Alliance, we are very much opposed to fear-mongering, and I think that information is the cure, at least for panic, certainly not for contagion. But there's a fair amount of good information that allows people to make rational decisions if you're inclined to do so. And Janet, it sounds like you're making rational decisions right now.
2: Well,
3: Janet, can I ask a question about your yes. decision-making process? Are you are you currently um, in a contract with a hotel or a venue where you would have to forfeit a deposit or anything of that nature or forfeit a, a predetermined fee? Yes.
0: yes. So if
3: you cancel, what's the, what's the ramification of that for you?
0: Um, it's huge because it's personal too. Like it'll yeah. be my line of credit paying it out. So um, yeah. I feel concerned, but not frantic um there we have passed the date for cancelling on both the hotel and the art gallery which is our venue um i i feel that i could go back to them and try to work something out in terms of you know maybe if they don't have to make all that food i could get a discount but um i think we're going to be looking to our colleagues and trying to be fair with them, right? Like, you know, they're gonna be seeing a downturn. Uh, yeah, it's interesting.
3: If, yeah, sorry, Janet. Yeah. Like I say, it's interesting, Steve, I hope you don't mind, we're, we're in a very similar position, but at a different starting point with respect to launching yet a, a new conference, mm-hmm. uh, which we hope to hold in January of 20, uh, 2021. The, the challenge we have right now is we haven't yet signed the contract on purpose, because we know that our constituents, and we know that those who would sponsor the event, who've already pledged to sponsor the event, uh, are now on times where they're locking their financial resources for fear that this could be a a catastrophic year for income. And out of respect for them and out of respect for our constituents, do we make the decision to plow forward and ask for registration now, or do we continue to hold off Uh, Before we've committed those things, because like you, you know, for for me, Janet, this would be personal money, be personal guarantees. um, And uh, personally on the hook, should we have to not move forward and this thing, not uh, get any better in the near term? And the sponsors, you know, the sponsors might not magically be able to make their year and therefore uh, sponsor us. So we feel it's prudent and pragmatic for our constituents and those who would sponsor us. To not put that pressure on them uh, at this point in time,
0: and I do think you know everyone needs to be thinking about that timeline. So we were committed. I have received checks from our sponsors, so I do have money in the bank. Um, I have received you know registration money, so that's in in hand. Um, and we ha- we were quite well advanced by the time this really began. You know, I think I would have maybe felt some more caution if we were another month, two months in the future. I might not feel quite so confident. But, um, you know, it, and it comes down to locally, how confident do we each feel about our public health system, our healthcare care system? Um, and I'm in a fortunate situation. Uh, not, you know, I mean, yeah, I'm north of the border, but um, I'm fortunate because we went through such a a difficult, difficult time with SARS. And that has made a lasting change to how our province deals with an outbreak. I mean, one of the things I hadn't anticipated during that was people are not very good at geography. People are not good at geography. We had, um, you know, Stratford is a small city of 34,000 people, two hours outside of Toronto. And yet we had tons and tons of ticket cancellations because people did not want to come to stratford which was a good two hours from where any infection had been confirmed so you know we're a big country we're kind of spread out so i I
3: wonder scott sorry I, i wonder scott your company sponsors uh events and things of that nature is your company in a position now where it's it's holding off on those decisions if that's not too personal to ask uh for you know to let this kind of play out
2: we are not holding off um, we we are not fearful what what our belief is is those that we would invest in would work with us uh, to and we with them to uh, weather the storm together so um, you know our decisions become much more personal there you know we don't have a ton of money to spread around throughout uh, multiple sources so those we do Uh, volunteer with or participate with Um, we believe like I believe most hotels would work with uh, with anyone putting on a show in the future uh, as I believe the cruise industry is attempting to work with people that are involved is to not um, uh, to not lose that business but to to delay it to push it towards the future to somehow work together that uh, that that each will accomplish its goals. It just may not be accomplishable. Say in your case in January of 2021, right now, um, but February or March, perhaps. I mean, uh, so uh, no, we're 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 still moving forward. Uh, Great, so Steve. Thanks, Steve, for letting me get it in there. Sure. And
0: I can. Uh, sorry, Steve, I'm busting in now. Um, I can confirm that this morning, just before I joined this podcast. I had confirmation from a platinum sponsor, from someone who you know knows the situation and is tremendously supportive and wants to see this conference move forward. So, um, I have a lot of people in my corner who are prepared to to go with this, and uh, I'm very grateful for that.
1: And, yeah, that that is great, and I I personally find that really encouraging. Um, so let me. Let me do my kind of due diligence here and give you all uh, listening to this podcast a couple of references so that you can combat unreasoning fear with factual information. Uh, for those of you in the United States, um, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control has an excellent website which is updated constantly, uh, and they have both information on you know the statistical incidence of. Uh, infection as well as mortality. Those numbers are changing very rapidly in the U.S. uh, due to testing data. So, you know, if you want to nerd out on the incidence of coronavirus in the States, uh, the CDC's website is very comprehensive. Um, They also have information about, you know, hand washing. And as I once again, you know, bring my bottle of hand sanitizer, you know, to, to my bosom and, you know, sort of embrace it, useful information, but really the information about how to keep yourself hygienic. Um, I'll refer you to the webinar that the Event Safety Alliance put on last week, which is posted, uh, a recorded version is posted to our website. Um, I strongly encourage you to take an hour of your time to listen to Dr. Weiss's webinar. Um, It was excellent, it is informative, it is not alarmist, and will make you feel like, huh, This is stuff that I learned when I was a little kid or when I sent my own little kids to elementary school uh, as the basic personal hygiene lesson is really simple. Um, I take some some heart in that as well. Um, For those of you who are not within the United States, the World Health Organization also has an excellent website. Um, They too are monitoring the data around the world. Personally, I find that somewhat more scary, but again, as as I think Janet did an excellent job explaining, it is important to have a sense of your own geography. Where are you relative to where the major incidents of disease are located? Because, as you will find out if you do any research on any scientific-based website, coronavirus has a very short, you know, physically short distance that it can travel. So, you know, the the recommendation is separate yourself by roughly six feet from the person nearest to you. Well, that's pretty hard if you're sitting on an airplane or going to a live event. So, in any event, it's not traveling, you know, across state lines or provincial lines or national borders without a person transmitting it. And I think that's important as well. So there is actual scientific data, whether it's in a webinar posted on our website or on scientific government websites that are available for you to check as much as you feel like you need to. Um, personally, I am rather overwhelmed by information right now. I feel like I'm just overloaded. And I'm actually going to declare kind of a coronavirus news holiday for myself for a day or so because I just need to do other things in my life. Uh, So if you're feeling emotionally overwhelmed, maybe give yourself a little space just to be present in your own life. Uh, Doubtless your loved ones and friends will appreciate talking about anything else for a few minutes. And then let me tease the next thing that the event safety alliance is going to cover in a podcast because alas coronavirus has many facets and we just talked about kind of the the business decision making aspect of it but obviously this disease and the fear of this disease is causing enormous ripples so mental health issues Uh, there are issues about workers who you know, essentially live hand to mouth, and how are they going to ride this out? So we talked about how, you know, institutions like hotels and airlines and cruise ship lines, they're making accommodations, they're working with the people who would do business with them, but how does that actually work for the boots on the ground? We're going to address mental health and workplace justice in a separate podcast in the very near future. So we're gonna get this one done, get it out to you, but we're gonna keep the conversation going so that we cover the other ripple effects because, well, we're not done with this coronavirus issue and we want to shine a light into the darker corners as well as the ones that everyone's paying attention to right now. So the event safety line's trying to be fairly comprehensive, uh, but doing it in bite-sized pieces so that nobody is Drinking from the fire hose. Uh, so, with that, I'm going to wind it up for today. Um, I am Steve Edelman. Thanks very much to Scott Carroll from Take One Insurance, Janet Celery from Celery Health and Safety, and the Event Safety Alliance Canada. Good luck with the conference later this month, Janet. Uh, and Jim Digby, our president here in the States. Uh, Always thanks to Jacob Warwick for making us sound good. Uh, And thank you, podcast listeners. Uh, Come back and visit us again soon because we're going to keep up with this story. And until then, be safe out there.